Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Rowan McMahon and Jez Weston are co-founders of the Climate Venture Capital Fund, a fund that invests in emission reduction technologies in New Zealand and Australia. Now, we've had these two on the show about a year ago to announce their ambitions, but a year on, what's happened? Did they raise the money they require? Have they invested in anything? And what's happening new in tech and in climate change that's on their radar? And full disclosure, I think I've said this before, I'm an investor, massive investor in the Climate Venture Capital Fund and also a contractor working for these two. So inside the tent, but nevertheless, very interesting. Welcome to the show, Jez and Rowan. Hi there. Rowan, tell us a year on, the fund is launched. Are you allowed to say how much you raised? Probably not, but, um, you know, it would be fair to say that we're uh, well and truly out the door uh, and underway, which is which is good. Um, we're, we're making some solid progress. Uh, having said that, um, the fund is still open for, uh, for new investors if any wish to join us. Um, and, you know, we're very happy with our progress to date. Um, what we're not very happy about is the progress of climate change, which, of course, is just um, getting uh, all the more pressing. Um, so, you know, we're in a very large and important space. Um, we're a relatively small part of that at the moment, but um, we have some good things up our sleeves, which we'd love to talk to you about today. What kind of people have invested? I think it's a wholesale fund, right? So you can't just kind of rock up as, a, as an ordinary retail investor. So what kind of organizations or people are putting their readies into the fund yeah that's right vincent it is a wholesale only fund so um we are required by the fma to make sure that we are um, compliant with um, uh, certifying people's wholesale status which means basically that they're experienced investors and also there is a minimum commitment uh, for investors which tends to lock out a lot of smaller investors what we have found so far is that um, most people who've joined up um, have been private individuals, family offices, um, high net worth individuals, um, more towards that smaller side of things. Um, and at the larger side of things, we have had a small number of institutions and uh, NGOs uh, help us out so far with, with initial capital commitments. Um, but it's interesting also that, you know, there is some interest from larger institutional investors at the moment. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, larger investors more in the institutional space that are realising that um, they have downside risk from climate change, which you know, perhaps they've been factoring in, but perhaps not fully, um, and don't really have a great deal of, um, of upside from uh, some of the opportunities from clean investment, um, and probably are facing increasing stakeholder pressure from, um, from uh, some of their, uh, their own clients and their own investors hmm. to be doing more about climate change. Hmm. So the pitch when you go out there is, is what? Invest in the space because it's VC and you'll get a higher return, higher risk obviously, but get a higher return. Or are you selling it as an impact fund? Uh, put your money into a, into a cause that will make a difference in reducing emissions. I like to call us a fund for impact rather than an impact fund because um, a lot of people, when, you, when they hear the word impact fund, they think that means some kind of concessional return. Um, you know, 2% return or zero return or some kind of suboptimal return or sub-market return. Um, we think mm. that there's no reason that um, you need to compromise between looking for for good um, commercial VC-level returns and looking for solid, provable climate impact. We haven't needed to compromise on those two things so far, and that's because there is such a large 
is such a large space and there is such a lot to be done. Um, so the um, I think the pitch is essentially both. We are trying to, to deliver great returns and have that provable climate impact, which I think a lot of people really, really want to see. Hmm. My sense is that as a class, it's really emerging. Um, and do you find that the international growth of this kind of category, is that having an influence in New Zealand? Is the, you know, are New Zealand investors waking up now to the potential of it? Yeah, I think they are. And um, I, one category of investor I didn't mention is overseas investors. We're also receiving interest from some overseas parties who are looking at New Zealand and thinking it's not a bad place to be commercialising new technology um, comparatively solid uh, regulatory environment around climate policy and the like. Um, and, mm. you know, it's certainly it's very fair to say that investors around the world are waking up to climate response. Um, in New Zealand, it, to be honest, if anything, I'd say we're probably a little behind. Um, and uh, mm. part of our effort is to try to speed up and catch up. Mm. So you got some money in the door. That's fantastic. And um, that allowed you, geez, to go and spend some what have you invested in? Have you? Can you tell us about um, the companies that you've invested in so far? Certainly. Uh, there's four of them so far. Um, very widely spread across the entire economy because, let's face it, the entire economy needs to change to respond to climate yeah. change. Um, it could, well, companies we've got include energy storage, household cleaning, um, chemical engineering and uh, recovering metals. Um, Zincovery is our latest investment, uh, which we've just announced. They have a great mm. technology for recovering zinc from when galvanized steel is recycled. And that's a, a technology which currently still uses coal. So it's about bloody time that we uh, make a bit of a change there. Mm, interesting. Zincovery, along with the uh, other... Um investment uh, around ammonia is quite interesting because both of those, uh, uh, the products themselves is where the cost, I mean, the manufacturing of the product comes in, right? So making ammonia is what something like responsible for something like 2% of the world's emissions. Um, what, what, is the, what is the company that um, has, a, has allowed, you know, kind of attracted your interest and what do they do that affects that um, emissions profile for ammonia? Uh. Ammonia is a really interesting one. We need it for fertilizer. We need it to grow food. And it's being put forward as a zero-carbon way of powering long-distance shipping, uh, the kind of distance that, that batteries really won't do. So everyone's forecasting the amount of ammonia to be uh, produced to, to go through the roof. And yes, that's currently produced from fossil fuels and very, very high emissions. Maybe 2% of world greenhouse gas emissions, but actually trying to put a, an exact figure on that is, is, is a little tricky because the reporting is, yeah, it's kind of almost as if the industry doesn't want to admit quite how much it's uh, emitting there. But it's a lot. And mm. some research out of uh, Victoria University came up with a, a very unexpected set of smart catalysts um, which have the potential to let you make uh, ammonia for very much lower pressures, very much lower temperatures, entirely using renewable energy. Um, and it's too early to say how much of an emission savings you might get from that, but all the indications are pointing to 
they're all pointing in the right direction, and there's some really f- substantial potential changes here. So we're really hopeful about that one. And that's, you know, we, we're going to take a portfolio approach to our, our companies, some of which, mm. like uh, Liquium, who are producing the ammonia, um, they're very early stage. They're, they're sort of just off the lab bench. Whereas a company like Cleanery, the household cleaning products, they're in market right now. So we are uh, you know, covering all those early stages for a company. Mm. So we just run through the list. We've got Liquium, mm-hmm. which specialises in reducing the cost of and uh, requirements for ammonia manufacturing. We've got Zincovery, which recovers zinc from galvanised uh, recyclable steel. Cleanery, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a second. And what's the fourth? MGA Thermal. This is a Australian company. Uh, they have a great technology for storing electricity as, as heat, as molten aluminium. And if you're in Australia right now, especially South Australia, they're building lots more solar, which means that you know, midday they've got so much solar that the price is going negative. So you can get paid money to take that electricity away. <laughs> and then in the evening, those evening peaks, the price shoots back up again. You get paid again to return that electricity. You could do that with batteries, and plenty of people are, but the world can't produce anywhere near enough lithium batteries uh, in the short term or in the medium term. And the batteries that we are producing are probably better off just going into um, decarbonizing transport, so electric cars. So we need storage solutions that can work. Um, pumped hydro is another option, which helps a lot, but we see a very big market for uh, that you know, daily energy storage. And MGA Thermal have got a great solution. They are scaling up very rapidly. They've got a huge pipeline of customer interest. And that will let us move electricity grids off coal, off natural gas, and onto intermittent solutions like um, renewable, you know, wind and, and solar. Um, hmm. The sooner that transition happens, the more emission savings we've got, the more chance we have of keeping the planet on a, a, a track to a livable future. Now you're a metallurgist by training, that's what your PhD is in, but you're going to have to uh, talk to us slow and in simple terms, but how does how do those blocks work, Jez? You've you've got some sort of uh, I think there's a is a graphite or something that holds this alloy into place and gets super hot without melting. Yeah, it's literally just that. You've got a block about the size of a, a common concrete block. The imagine your um, sponge that you might use for cleaning your dishes. The sponge part is graphite, which holds everything together, and it's also very good at quickly transmitting heat. So you can get heat in and out very quickly. Then all the little bubbles in your sponge, those are filled with little bits of aluminium. Um, That heats up, and about 650 centigrade, it melts, and that melting takes a lot of heat. And then when you want the energy back, you let the aluminium solidify, And again, all the heat that goes in comes straight back out again. Hmm. And it comes out at a very constant temperature, that 650 or so. You run water pipes through your blocks. That gives you superheated steam. And that that temperature of steam is just a perfect fit 
with steel steam turbines that you would have for generating electricity um, at somewhere like Huntley. Um, hmm. So it's it's just a really nice low technical risk um, drop in solution uh, if you want to store you know very large amounts of electricity. Mm. So it's almost a, a like for like swapping for coal for these blocks. Yeah, yeah. So instead of having a great big coal burner at your power plant, which is just burning coal and making steam, then you've got these blocks, which means you can take mm. in renewable electricity whenever it turns up, and then you can get it back out again as steam um, to feed into your turbines when you need it. That's very cool. Do you get excited about these things, or is, is the journey to investment so long and slow and arduous that you kind of lose the joy? Or is there a certain kind of, I don't know, you know, sort of boy's own adventure in this stuff? Uh, I'm a metallurgist, so I get really interested in metals, you know, <laughs> melting and solidifying. Um, and at the end of the day, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, and while policy matters, while economics matter, while all of those you know, incentives and relative prices matter. Mm. Um, I want to see some big hardware getting out there and changing <laughs> the world. Why not? Rowan, tell us about Cleanery. Um, we, for those of you who have listened to the Cleanery podcast, you probably could skip through this, but, but um, Cleanery are very cool. Yeah, um, two, um, uh, a couple, um, Ellie and... Um, and uh, Mark, who have created this alternative to standard household cleaners. Tell us about it and why did you invest? Well, Cleanery is a really neat uh, Auckland-based company, fairly fairly uh, new and early stage on the in the company evolution on the whole, but probably the latest, latest stage of the four companies that we've invested in so far. Um, so they are in market now, as Jez mentioned. And what they're doing is um, decarbonising the cleaning aisle of your supermarket, which is probably one of the, the aisles of the supermarket I think that's changed the least in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they have an, an ambition to, to do the personal care aisle after the cleaning aisle. Um, so if, you, if you're in your cleaning aisle and you're thinking of buying some kind of household cleaners, it's almost inevitable that you're buying plastic bottles at the moment, which are largely filled with um, water. Um, and you, if you're someone who's interested in climate change, you sort of re- work backwards from that product um, you have paid for the emissions impact of that water-filled plastic bottle being moved from um, quite long distances in, in some cases, as far away as Europe in a couple of cases that we've looked at, uh, often from Australia and the like. Um, so Cleanery's product, um, and I have one here actually, uh, is actually a little sachet. Um, and uh, they, they sell multi-purpose cleaners um, and bathroom cleaners and glass cleaners and the like in a powdered form. Um, you can provide your own bottle or you can uh, uh, you can buy one of theirs. Um, and it's simply a way to uh, to make um, circular the cleaning process at vastly lower um, material inputs and therefore vastly higher, uh, vastly lower levels of emissions than you would get from uh, legacy products. Um, so there are some alternatives out there around the cleaning aisle. Some of us used to use white vinegar, for example, as a cleaning product that's cheap and easy to use. Um, but a lot of people will tell you that they um, don't understand those things. We are in the habit of buying things from the supermarket. And even people who talk about the reusable products, the ones that you can take back and refill and so on, will often tell you that um, that refilling is something they don't get around to doing. Um, mm. 
So Cleanery is a, is a really neat product. Um, they've got a range of SKUs or stock, stock keeping units that they can do as they broaden out their range in the cleaning aisle. Uh, and as I mentioned, they're also expanding into personal care. So they, offer, they sell hand wash at the moment. And I think thanks to everyone's favorite virus, we're all a bit more conscious of hand washing uh, these days than we ever were. So I think that's a large and growing category. Um, and they have some scientific um, kind of protection around what they're doing because there is some novel science in what they're doing in that it's, um, it's uh, highly, um, it's a high quality uh, cleaning product made from biodegradable ingredients. Um, not easily replicated, and particularly in the case of the hand wash, it's that viscosity or the sort of gooiness of the um, hand wash, uh, going from a powder mm. to a liquid to a, a gooey um, sort of a hand washy type uh, um, substance. That that's got some scientific novelty to it. So we think it is defendable. Mm. Um, it's also um, something that's able to be manufactured relatively cheaply, um, which is important because we see a lot of products where um, when we talk about green transition or decarbonisation, we talk about um, the green premium, which is the idea that you should pay a price premium of perhaps 50% or 100% in order to have a lower emissions product. In an environment where the household um, budget is really stretched, um, you know, inflation's running at 7%, uh, it's not realistic to expect people to just shell out a whole lot more in order to, mm. to reduce their emissions. That's just not realistic. Um, and it confines a lot of green products to a really small niche, uh, whereas cleanery, we, we actually think this has legs and could um, could uh, hopefully help to decarbonise the whole of the cleaning aisle, um, which would be really fantastic. So taking taking a really dirty product um, and cleaning it up in a big way, which is ironic because it's cleaning, um, and also has some great co-benefits because uh, you are using a lot less plastic waste um, and, uh, you know, because the, the, the ingredients are all biodegradable, you're going to have improved water quality as well. So um, really, really interesting prospect, completely different from a liquium or an MGA thermal. But I think the nice thing about our fund is that we uh, are able to start with the problem in mind, which is emissions. And because emissions are everywhere, we literally could be in supermarket categories uh, one week or we could be in energy storage the next. Uh, those are the sorts of opportunities that we have in front of us. So, mm. um, I, I love cleanery. I'm uh, just joining the board at the moment and it was great to see them on your podcast last week it's interesting that you mentioned the green premium because uh, so much of what has to happen has to be at a scale and it has to be mainstream for it to work all of the products uh, companies that you've just mentioned you know the the impact can't be just at the margins right it actually has to work uh, take MGA thermal for it to have a significant difference it actually has to work in mainstream Coal boilers and drive turbines in in big facilities, right? Otherwise, you you're still just playing on the edge. So, uh, for you as investors, uh, is mainstreaming this tech kind of one of your criteria? Maybe Jez could have a go at that. Absolutely. Um, if we think about the rates of change of emissions that we need about how rapidly we need to decarbonize then we can't be just messing around at the edges and for example the longer a product is in use for the more we need to decarbonize it if you look at for instance electric cars now at a end-to-end total life cycle kind of um, measure um your average electric car is going to save maybe two-thirds of the emissions compared with a petrol car. 
and that's why so many people are buying them right now. They are, they are just, I mean, they're just better cars in many ways. But cars, especially in New Zealand, average age is 12 years. That means the fleet takes 25 years to turn over. So even though we are replacing fossil fuel cars with cars that have 66% emission savings, we're only replacing 125th of the cars of the fleet per year. So the actual savings are barely on track for to hit you know, any reasonable climate targets. And that's a disruptive technology which is being rolled out at scale right now. So on, yeah. there's a bunch of solutions to that kind of problem, one of which is to try to roll out that disruptive technology much faster. So we have you know, ideas of uh, a cash for clunkers um, incentive where we'd be getting rid of the oldest and dirtiest cars faster. But what we really need is not just the, the new technical solutions like electric cars. We need to be rolling out our solutions very, very much rapidly, much more rapidly um, than we are right now. And if you think about something like, uh, oh, a power station, some of our power stations are 75 years old. That's locking in a hell of a lot of emissions with whatever we built you know, 70 years ago. Um, we need to be building much more in the way of cleaner kit right now to solve some of those longer-term emissions. And the other challenge there is is where emissions are kind of ancillary to the main use, um, and I'm thinking houses in particular. When you build houses, you are locking in the emissions. Um, mm. Yes, you can do retrofits. Yes, you can change your heating. Yes, you can put some insulation in, but that's all a lot of a palaver. So really, when you're building a house, you're locking in emissions for 100 years, which means that we really need to change the kind of houses that we're building and change all of the long-lived infrastructure that we're building. The other way to think of it, um, I think, is uh, geographically. So when you talk about mainstreaming, you know, we are a relatively small proportion of global greenhouse gas emissions in New Zealand, a, a lot more than we should be per capita, but still fairly small. Um, but each of the investments we've done is really uh, looking at categories of emissions that are global in their nature, and the solution should scale globally as well, you know, if it, if it works out well. Uh, so, you know, everybody's got a household cleaning problem. Um, everyone's got an energy storage problem. And, you know, if, if, uh, if you look at uh, the example of MGA Thermal and you simply said, well, how many coal plants are there around the world? Um, and where are they? Obviously, they're, they're everywhere and the number is in the hundreds and each one has an enormous emissions footprint. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping to take on uh, those hard to abate emissions categories on a global basis. You know, we're, we're quite small in this part of the world, but um, the companies that we're working with are ambitious and uh, have some, some big goals. And many of those goals go uh, well, well uh, past our part of the world. So much of the uh, focus has been around new technology and um, your investments are in all in disruptive technologies. Are there things that you could do as investors that would speed up and not just in the in the products themselves, but in the financing or in the way that you could create network economies? Are there ways that your money and your effort could go into speeding up the adoption of new technologies? Yeah, Rowan. Well, we talk about um, the idea of blended finance, and I think that's really important in climate response. So if you think of the venture capital layer, which is about helping an early-stage company to, um, to get out the door with products and to expand and so on, 
um, that will naturally be followed by a latter, latter stage uh, growth equity capital, which could be um, to help them expand further, but it could also be to help them um, sort of run individual projects or individual production runs of what they're doing, or it could be to expand or license their kit into other countries. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of debt finance that um, helps these companies to, to do their work. And so there's a range of people doing really interesting work around uh, green bonds and climate bonds. Um, and we're also seeing, you know, a very steady um, and substantial flow of government funding towards decarbonisation now. And then finally, um, you know, you do see a lot of uh, genuine impact investors, people who may come into it without that kind of commercial imperative that we talked about earlier and say, well, actually, I don't really need my money back. I'm happy to think of it as a, a grant or a philanthropic uh, contribution, or perhaps I want my money back, but I don't need a great return on it or any return at all. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really one part of the... Um, the, uh, the stack. I think of it like a cake of, of different layers. Uh, the VC layer hmm. we see as being catalytic and helping these companies to really scale up faster. And hopefully we offer a little bit more than just the capital. It's actually some of our skills as well. Um, but that, that is certainly um, something that we see uh, growing all the time. Um, and, you know, climate capital around the world is going to be measured in the trillions of dollars. Uh, US, I was recently reading that the, uh, the sum of green bonds that's being transacted uh, each year has now gone past the US $1 trillion mark. They're huge sums of money, um, but actually a lot more is needed. Uh, and that's probably true for VC as well. While we see that there is more money going into clean technology commercialization, uh, that's good news, but probably it needs to um, go up another quantum or two. Mm. And let's also recognize that much of this is much of this is investment problems. Much of this is not. So, you know, back to thinking about electric cars. Um, yes, you get a really big emissions savings from them, but you get a much bigger emissions savings if people move to electric bikes. And then you also get a whole bunch of co-benefits around active transport, um, healthier lifestyles, and, and richer communities. That's not an investment problem. That's a local politics problem about you know, bicycle lanes and road space. So we're going to be really upfront about the areas where we think we can help but we don't want mm. to oversell it. There's plenty of other solutions that, that need to be delivered by other people as well. It's interesting to me that the, the area of most need, at least in terms of scale, is agriculture. And there seems to be a real lack of innovation or uh, products or solutions, particularly around methane. Uh, I think I've posed this problem to you before. Has anything moved on? And maybe this is one for you, Jez, in the methane solutions. You know, and I think you're probably going to say yes, uh, fewer cows, probably. But um, and that is a legitimate um, response. So I don't want to take that from you. But is there anything in in your coming across your desk in the ag sector that makes you think actually that is worth exploring more, or we would contemplate investing in? Yes, I'm a little surprised by this because um, I've been very negative about the ideas of, of, of silver bullets here, um, despite the fact that a lot of effort has gone into you know methane vaccinations or low feed, um, low emissions mm. animals. Um, silver bullets could actually reduce herd sizes, well, of course, but you know, expensive way of doing it. Uh, we have cheaper mm. options there, uh, <laughs> but. There's been quite a lot of push around um, asparagopsis. This is this uh, seaweed that you can feed to um, ruminants, cattle and sheep, which has really does have quite substantial impacts uh, upon their, their methane production. 
And, you know, when, when this was sort of first proposed about five years ago, a whole bunch of people, including myself, pointed out a lot that was not known about the science uh, and a lot of the flaws. Now, that research is, is progressing. It's producing some good results. And actually, it's looking like um, the seaweed may be a better option than plenty of us thought. So I'm, I'm happy to say that that's looking more positive than, than we might expect. Um, at the same time, it's still not a great solution. We'd, we'd needed a hell of a lot of seaweed to be able to treat all of the cattle and sheep in, in New Zealand. But it may well play a role. <sighs> However, um, I, would, okay, I would slightly take uh, disagreement with, with your comment that, that agriculture is, 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 is not innovating. It is innovating. It's innovating very rapidly. The innovations, however, are not going to let us carry on doing agriculture in the way that we have been doing it. There's a big push now to horticulture away from dairy or to forestry away from, you know, dry stock. And there's a big push to plant-based proteins and other sources of, of proteins, all mm. of which is adding up to some quite substantial challenges at a commercial level for farmers. Um, we've just seen, uh, when we're recording this interview, the, the government announcing the um, Haywaka Akinoa um, plan for agricultural emissions reductions to bring agricultural emissions into the ETS. Um, that's quite a substantial document, and, and I haven't had a chance to dig into it in a lot of detail. Um, but that's very much focused on supporting business as usual with marginal changes. And that's what we're not. That's not what we're going to need. What we're going to need is something much more substantive, uh, and that's going to be very challenging at a social level and a political level. Um, we need to maintain a social license for food production, um, and that really kind of clashes with some of New Zealand's beliefs about New Zealand itself. Um, hmm. I've said before. I think that will be the sort of defining political dis- dis- debate of the next ten years, um, and hmm. I, I see that debate just continuing um there's no easy solutions here even if seaweed does do what some of us are hoping it will do you think the new zealand identity is so tied up with being agriculturalists and having a farm-based economy or at least an agri-based economy that that even if you could demonstrate the technological changes that what the there's too much tied up in being a grass-fed nation of beef eaters there's a lot of people that are very committed to telling you that, is how I would put it. There's also a hell of a lot of people who... New Zealand is a very urban society. We have a lot of people that live in cities, a lot of people that don't have those connections to, to the land and to agriculture. And for them, a lot of this debate is, is, is kind of a, a bit of a baffling one because they're nowhere near as passionate about it as some of the more you know, traditionalist point of view. Mm-hmm. But let's recognise mm-hmm. there's a very large chunk of, of, of New Zealand's community and New Zealand's political community that does have those commitments. Mm. Ron? It's interesting to observe, um, having said all that, uh, that you know there's, there's been a boom in solar um, happening this year um, in New Zealand, which is good to see and probably we're a little bit late to that party. Um, but there's a major solar farm going in onto former dairy land um, down near Taupo. And it's going to be New Zealand's largest single solar array, so it's just quite substantial. So it does make you wonder about the interdependencies between these things. And, you know, we haven't seen the business case for that, but it's 
substantial investment and it's over over a thousand hectares. Um, Topor is is um, an unusual district in that it has um, limits on stocking levels that are lower than um, than many other districts. So perhaps that's driven their calculation. But you know the uh, the need for um, renewable energy has obviously gone past the um, the profit that you can make from a record dairy price. So I just thought that was a really interesting um, observation. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about the politics. So, you know, where is New Zealand at? I think since we've spoken, quite a few bits of law have been put into uh, effect. Um, we, you know, we have um, a functioning ETS. We have uh, an emissions reduction plan, uh, an adaptation plan, the Zero Carbon Act. I think as these things have all been passed in really in the last fifteen months. How how optimistic are you, uh, Rowan, about the effect of the, the that legislation is it driving the kind of change and in investment and behaviour that uh, we need? Well, I hope it is, but I think it's an uneven effect at the moment. I mean, I think the uh, the emissions reduction plan, for example, um, has uh, really, really hefty levels of funding available for process heat decarbonisation. So that's helping the manufacturing sector to get rid of, um, for example, the uh, the coal fired uh, milk processing plants, or perhaps it's the um, coal-fired um, tomato uh, greenhouses that uh, we, we're very troubled about when we read about them. Um, so that's an example where the, the funding appears to align with quite rapid rates of decarbonisation. On the other hand, um, the transport sector, the uh, cash for clunkers scheme, for example, is um, has a two-year trial period, and yet this is an absolutely pivotal decade for um, for decarbonisation, and transport is probably the, the lowest-hanging fruit. So why are we having a two-year trial period? for that particular scheme, which is kind of the flagship part of the transport um, decarbonisation agenda. Um, we talked mm. about agriculture. I, I, I mean, I think the, 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 the main component parts are all there, um, but I would like to see it more evenly applied. Um, and, you know, some of those pieces are still really full to uh, yet, yet to drop into place, particularly the agriculture piece that Jez was just mentioning. Um, I think if you looked at it from the outside, you'd have to say that New Zealand's um, sort of policy landscape around climate is um, is, is uh, really getting its act together and has done very well in the last few years. Um, we have uh, a more ambitious agenda and a more complete regulatory framework than across the ditch in Australia, but even they have recently legislated a 43% emissions reduction target by 2030, uh, yet they don't have a government uh, functioning uh, carbon price uh, yet, so that they've got quite a long way to go to, uh, to catch up. Mm. There's quite a uh, movement around uh, thinking of the ETS and the carbon price as the driving mechanism for behaviour change. I think this comes out of you know people like uh, economist Eric Crampton and others. How confident are you, Jez, that carbon pricing is the driver of change? Is that what's going to um, f- flood your coffers with money as people try and look for alternatives because the carbon price now makes it impossible for people to do business as usual? The carbon price is currently uh, just over um, 80 New Zealand dollars, and that's up very substantially over the last two, three years. So that is going to drive some behaviour. Where you, if you're in a business where you know the, the, those, those carbon costs are a substantial amount of your business, then then that's going to certainly make you pay attention. Now you may well believe you don't have any good solutions, um, and that's the argument that, that agriculture has been making to avoid paying that carbon price. Um, and even with the latest uh, proposals, um, they're still only bearing a very small amount of that price. 
But for the majority of industries, then their carbon costs or their energy costs are actually kind of pretty small chunks of their overall costs. They've probably got concerns that are much more, you know, overriding. Um, if you are, you know, running a trucking company, then obviously fuel costs matter to you a great deal. But if you happen to be doing, um, I don't know, you're selling computers or something, then yeah, you probably own some vehicles and those vehicles probably drive around a bit. Um, but as a percentage of your, you know, total costs, then you're, you're, mm-hmm. it, it's just not a strong driver for a lot of, of businesses when you compare it with all the other costs and all the other things that those people have got to be thinking about. And let's face it, not everybody makes decisions purely on the basis of cost. In fact, mm. almost everybody doesn't. There's so many other factors that, that, that play a role. So I think that, that you know, New Zealand's focus on we'll have a market the market sets a price, that'll change behavior. That's a very limited view of human of humanity and of business. So I, I really see a stronger role for non-price and non-market-based uh, incentives here. Mm, mm. Yeah, the view that, um, that the, the price is going to uh, be the, the thing that determines the whole of decarbonization to me is um, really simplistic. I mean, to, to, for that to be true, You'd have to, because this is a global system that we're talking about, you'd have to have perfect trading of carbon or a carbon price uh, mechanism across different countries, and you'd have to have some kind of harmonization of carbon commitments from different countries. Um, You'd have to have um, common regulatory systems and measurement systems and so on. And, you know, that to me is like the... um, the global trading system that we had for just for traded goods and services, which, you know, uh, post-World post War II has taken decades and decades and decades to work out mm. um, and is still incomplete. And if you think of the World Trade Organization and so on, these things drive disputes even today. Um, so we, we clearly, you add the carbon layer into that and we clearly have um, a completely um, lopsided market. Some places have carbon prices, some places don't. Um, there's different trading mechanisms, there's different voluntary schemes, there's different measurement and certification uh, schemes. And um, so it's clearly a long way from a fully functioning, um, you know, really liquid market. Um, and so those inefficiencies mean that um, the price-only view can't be the only, um, just, it just can't work. It's, it's, one, it's one tool, uh, but it's just that. I mean, I think quite a good comparison is cigarettes. You know, they've been priced to the point where they're just exorbitant and, uh, we, you know, we haven't stopped smoking, have we? And we've got this sort of similar addiction to, to oil as we do, as many people do to, to nicotine. And I think if it was just a, a – if, if we were just rational creatures, um, you know, to Jesus' point, that then, you know, pricing would have fixed it by now. But, you know, there's so much more that has to go on to – get behaviour change. Um, let's talk about, in the last little bit, we, we um, have seen, um, Jez, uh, another spike in energy costs as um, someone tripped over the cable in the Cook Strait and, um, and North, North Island suddenly lost, um, uh, I don't know, access to South Island power. It's not probably quite the right analogy, but it's, it's not that far away from the truth. Uh, what's going on with our energy system and in what way can a shift to renewables address some of those vulnerabilities? Okay, let's let's be precise here. Um, there was a... Oh, no, tripping yeah. over the cable was quite good. Anyway. <laughs> um, there was a filter at 
uh, Haywards at the uh, North Island end of the Cook Strait Cable that tripped out, um, which meant that at like 5.30 uh, in the morning on one of the coldest uh, mornings of the year when power demand was fairly high, that didn't take out the whole cable, but it did mean that we couldn't move north about 200 megawatts um, of, of power. Um, you could argue that the system did exactly what it was supposed to. Prices in the North of Ireland went up as a signal for people to reduce demand, and 180 megawatts of power dropped off, um, and prices went back down, and electricity was, you know, continued to be supplied um, as the system is supposed to, to operate. You could look at it that way, or you could say, hey, look, if one thing unexpected hardware failure um, brings us to uh, causes all sorts of kerfuffle and people have to start turning, you know, well, I say people, industries have to start turning things off, then that's not a good mm. sign. The, the debate is around this, what's called the N minus one criteria, N being the number of generators. And if one of them drops off, then now you've got N minus one generators. The system is designed to be stable at, at N minus one, right? You know, one of your big generators trips out or a big transmission fault like the Cook Strait cable. That's a very old fashioned view of the electricity system. It's a view that comes where you have a small number of very big generators um, mm. and quite predictable uh, patterns of use. Renewables mean that we are moving to a larger number of generators. Those generators are much more uh, variable in their um, generation. We're also moving to demand being much more controllable at much smaller scale. So instead of, say, tripping out, I don't know, a big um, industrial uh, cooling top refrigeration, cool store, that's what I'm looking for. So instead of <laughs> tripping out a big um, cool store that might be using you know, very, very large amounts of power, you might have uh, a whole bunch of electric vehicle chargers which individually are you know, using maybe about the same amount of power as, as a house, but can be controlled in a very much more flexible way. So you've got mm. a much more flexible uh, system that needs to be able to respond in much more complicated ways. So an N-1 criteria is, seems like a, a bit of a blunt tool. Mm -hmm. So it might be N minus 100, N plus 132, depending on how many inputs you've got. Yeah, yeah. you want a much more resilient system and a much more complex system. And you don't get resiliency mm. by treating, by with, with the kind of rules you would have for a simple system. Hmm. So not only the rules, but presumably also the way the grid operates and talks to itself. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about a much smarter grid, and that intelligence in the grid isn't as centralised. Uh, there's much smarter consumers at the edge of the grid. There's also much smarter uh, producers um, at you know throughout the grid. All of hmm. this is what we need to support a, a 21st century uh, system and a, a decarbonised system. Hmm. I really like the way that uh, RethinkX, the Tony Sieber group, have conceived of electricity as following the same trajectory as data. And in data, when we first got cell phones, you remember you had plans that were so complicated, you have to have a fold-out brochure to figure out, you know, what your data plan was. 
Um, his argument is that electricity is going to go the same way as data, where the, the, the cost of the marginal cost of electricity goes towards zero, but what you need is a much more responsive intelligence uh, grid that's sort of uh, handling the inputs and the outputs in the same way that telecommunication works. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, there's a great solution, as we've seen with, with data. You just drive down the price so you can have as much of it as you like. Now, with electricity, we're moving to uh, away from generators where you had to pay for the fossil fuels. You had to pay for the oil and gas, right? Mm. So you had a lot of operating costs. We're now moving to you know solar and wind where the operating costs are actually just bloody tiny. I mean, solar, mm. you pay the, once you've paid the capital costs, you just put it in a field. You have some sheep eating the grass underneath. You clean the dust and bird poo off it every so often. Your operating costs are incredibly low. So it all becomes a question of the, the capital costs. Um, and so you know, how do you make the maximum use of that? Well, that's, that's mm. a challenge. But I think the solution is that you know, the smarter grid and the smarter services that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Rowan, you know, what, uh, uh, one of the things we've talked about a lot and you see it happening is the shift to a, a renewable or a, 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 um, a low emissions economy is not a like for like. You don't just replace a diesel ferry with an electric ferry. You actually create a network of ferries that can talk to each other. And so it's not really a shift to this kind of different kind of economy is is um, not just like for like, isn't it? It's just you know, we've, um, another analogy is is electric cars. You know, you don't just a smarter transport system is not just a, replacing a fossil fuel car with an with an EV. It's as Jez has talked about. It's different modes. It's public transport. It's um, it's kind of re, it's Zoom, isn't it? It's actually not driving at all. You know, when you see these technologies, do you see a kind of a different economy emerging? I do over, over time, and I think the telco um, example or analogy is a really powerful one because you know it was you know we, we we take we totally take these things for granted now, but um, you know you're talking about uh, billions of dollars of capital investment into mobile uh, networks and into broadband networks, which has totally transformed the way in which we use the internet um, from something that was you know, um, you know, an optional extra and, and um, very slow and clunky and hard to use to something that is mm. literally ubiquitous. Um, you know, a lot of different countries have approached those challenges in different ways, but, you know, mostly it's ended up being some kind of industry policy where governments have recognised that they have interests to, um, to, uh, to pursue to, for, the, for the good of their citizens. Private uh, investors have recognised that they want to make as much capital as possible, um, and individual companies have approached different um, technology options in different ways. And you've ended up with a, a very, very different technology landscape to what um, it looked like um, even 20 years ago. Um, and so I think you'll see the same thing with decarbonisation is it's, it is sort of technology transformation of, of the whole economy and that will change the economy. It won't be one-for-one swaps uh, where the supply chain looks very much the same as it, did, as it did before, just cleaner. It'll be mode shift in transport. It'll be a change of consumer behaviours around um, consumption, um, particularly in foods, in my opinion, but hopefully in cleanery sachets and things like that as well. Um, so, you mm. know, cleanery is not a bad example. I mean, we, we depend on people being willing to refill their cleaning bottle, which is which is sort of something that not many people do. So part of our challenge uh, or cleanery's challenge is to, um, to try to explain to consumers that benefit and hopefully it's something 
something that they can um, understand over time and you'll get that behaviour change and it ends up being a better and cleaner and also more resilient economy. I mean, Jez mentioned mm. that, but, um, you know, when you do make things cleaner, um, you will tend to make them more resilient by definition, in my view. You know, we've seen coming out of... Um, uh, out of Russia, you know, the, just how dependent Europe is on, on a, a few gas pipelines in the last little while. So, you know, decarbonisation will have that benefit as well. Hmm. Um, let's give Jez the last word because um, I want you to just reflect on um, the business you're in. Jez is quite a hopeful business, venture capital. You've got to be hopeful or else, uh, you know, you'd get a nice safe job in a bank or something. But what gives you the hope that you're going to get your money back on these investments and that, uh, you know, this economy that, that um, Rowan has just described, you know, when's it going to happen? It's happening already. Uh, it's happening in some sectors very, very rapidly indeed. That's still not fast enough. So the faster we can push it, the better it's going to be for everyone. And, you know, for, for every company that's out there, um, climate change is a reality of business it's a reality for your customers for your investors for everybody you interact with um do you want to be a climate friendly business or do you want to be left in the past simple question <laughs> prefer to be a dinosaur they had very cool um a very cool existence for a long time um if people want to invest i don't know if, if you're still open for business rowan uh, yes, we are. People can find out more about us on uh, on our socials or at uh, climatevcfund.com. Thank you. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for um, your mahi in this area. You know, so necessary to have venture capital playing in this space and um, well done. And thank, thanks for um, letting me be part of the, um, the whole experience. Thanks very much, Vincent. We really appreciate uh, all, everything you're doing with the podcast and we love your work. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.